Our scripture lesson today comes to us from Genesis chapter 38, beginning to read with verse 11. Uh, so turn with me to Genesis 38. We've been going through focusing on the, the families of the patriarchs and trying to gain instruction for ourselves and our families today through these ancient families that were that represented the whole church of the Lord in that day or in that era. And it's hard to it's hard to imagine the church existing in only one location, one basic location represented by the families of uh, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's hard to believe that, but that's that's what we're reading about. That's what we're studying. So in, in Genesis 38, we're going to read about the family of Judah. Judah. Judah is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Each chapter has taken a slightly different turn, and so this chapter really focuses upon this one tribe or this one uh, patriarchal head named Judah. So I'll begin reading with verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, Lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers in Timnah, he and his friend Hira, a Dulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she shook off, took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself uh, and sat in an open place, which was on the way to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, Please let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she, so she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, What pledge shall I give you? So she said, Your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. Then Judah sent the young goat by the hand of a friend, and by his friend the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men of the place, saying, Where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men of the place said, There was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, Let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she was, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding. The title this morning is A Family Connections and Blood. Family Connections and Blood. 
I have four points, so I will, somewhat more laboriously than normal, I'll speak to these points as I go through them, and as I as I uh, preach my way through what has uh, what we have here before us in terms of this text in Genesis uh, 38. Uh, the first point is uh, Matthew 1.3 and Genesis 38, and it's terrible backstory. So that's kind of confusing in and of itself. Matthew 1.3 and Genesis 38. Well, if we turn to Matthew 1.3, becomes plain pretty quickly. Matthew 1.3 says, um, Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat uh, Judah, and his brothers, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. And it goes on down through then. This is one of the genealogies of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there are, there are three sets of 14 generations, beginning with Abraham. Then it gets to Jesus, and Jesus is the, the head of the, the, the seventh of the, the there are uh, three three sets of fourteen years or two two generations coupled together. There are three of them, and then Jesus is the the head of the seventh generation of of uh, the genealogy of Christ. So, uh, what we find out from this is that just as Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat his sons, and it goes to David. It ends up with the Christ being the progenitor or the father of a blessed seventh out of seven generations of people. Uh, and, uh, of course, we are of that generation. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is of that seventh, the, the people of the seventh generation. So we, even though our names are not mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we are there in principle. Then as we go back to look at the very beginning here, as I began to read Genesis, or, uh, Matthew 1-3, we see the, the mention of these two names, Perez, well, Judah, and Tamar, and Perez, and Zerah. And the, the, the mention of, of Perez and Zerah, that brings us back to Genesis 38, where we are today, because this tells the story of uh, how Perez and Terah were born, and we see that those Para and Perez and Terra are ancestors, the direct ancestors of Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a pretty amazing thing. Now, I say it's amazing because the story of Perez and, and, and Terra is a pretty grisly story. The earlier part of chapter 38 that we didn't read uh, tells the story of how Judah had married, for his wife, he had gone and gotten a Canaanite wife. Her name was Shua. We know that that's not a, uh, that's not a great thing, that uh, the, the Jews, uh, the children of Abraham were supposed to marry children of Abraham. They were supposed to marry out of the believing family. But we, we've seen all kinds of problems with that. It seems like the children of the world were very attractive to the children of Israel. And it's kind of... We can easily see that in our lives today because very often as we try to make our own families and keep our own families heading forward and in a positive direction, our children will find the people outside the church more attractive 
whether prettier or smarter or more promising in terms of money. There are all kinds of reasons why young people make decisions that are not so wise and go go chasing after people that they shouldn't. But then we find out that's exactly what happened way back here in the patriarchal era with the children of uh, the larger family of Abraham. And so this happened with Judah. Now, (laughs) we know that Judah, ultimately, Judah became one of the two major tribes of Israel. The two major tribes were Judah and Ephraim. Judah became Israel of the southern Israel, and Ephraim became northern Israel. So these were basically large states or governments within the state of Israel. Ultimately, they, they split apart. There was a civil war, and they split apart completely against God's will. But God permitted it because he let the, he let the passions of men take their course. In this case, we see, we see that Judah, who is, becomes this major figure in Israel history, we see that Judah was not making the best decisions. And so he married uh, Shua, and uh, he had three boys, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. The Bible says in verse 7 of chapter 38 that Ur was a wicked boy. And that God killed him because he was a wicked boy. People, people have no fear of the Lord in our day. And they really should. If they read the Bible, they really, they take, they see where God killed people. He actually brought them, brought them to death. It doesn't say how this happened, whether it was by disease or accident or whatever, but Ur, uh, Ur died. And then uh, Judah, his father, was concerned for, for Ur's, uh, wife and for her future and for how they would fit into the puzzle of Israel. And so uh, Judah commanded his son Onan to give Tamar, that that was Ur's wife, to give Tamar a child uh, by his capacities. But Onan refused to do that. He was less concerned. Onan was less concerned with God's provisions of that day for when these kinds of things would happen. We know ultimately that in the Mosaic Law that there was a uh, there was an official law to this end that if there was a if there was a family that had no heir for the sake of the the covenant and for the sake of the blessings of the covenant, the future covenant, that a near relative uh, a near relative man was supposed to give a child to that widow and uh, to preserve the promises of God as they were made uh, to each Israelite. But Onan wouldn't do it. He uh, refused to, because he said that the child would not be totally his. And so God killed Onan. And he he went to Tamar, Judah then went to Tamar, and he said, look, wait for my youngest child, Shelah, or um, Shelah, wait for him to become a man, uh, so that he can give you this child, and then uh, we will we will see that you that your family does get blessed. And so Tamar was sent to her father's house uh, to live. She she her life began to develop along those lines, and uh, then Sheila just uh, was uh, living was starting to mature slowly year by year. Meanwhile, uh, as Sheila when Sheila got older, Tamar noticed that. Judah had not followed through on his promise. And so she took things, matters into her own hands. And uh, she found out that Judah was going up to uh, this special threshing floor, this special place with uh, some of his shepherds. 
And so she, she conceived a plan, and she thought, you know, I'm going to get him, I'm going to get the father, Judah, to impregnate me, and that's how I'll get my child. So she was totally obsessive about the idea of obtaining a child by hook or by crook. And so she went and she did that. Judah came walking along, uh, going up to where he was going to go. He sees this uh, attractive-looking woman on the side of the road. He thinks that she's a prostitute. And here Ju Judah falls again. Uh, Israel was not supposed to consort with prostitutes. They, they knew that that was wrong. But uh, Judah did that anyway. Now Tamar had a veil over her face. And uh, many of the women in that day would would have veils at various times and occasions, and evidently the prostitutes of that day, that's what they, that's how they carry themselves. And so she has this veil over herself, and, and uh, uh, Ju Judah comes to her and says he wants to uh, consort with her, he wants to uh, be intimate with her, uh, so that he might be uh, satisfied as a man. And she says, well, what will you give me? He says, I'll give you a young goat, which is uh, certainly a, 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 valuable, a valuable thing. And, but he didn't have the goat with him. And so she says, well, what will you give me so that, uh, as, a, as by way of promise, so that I'll know that you'll bring this goat? And so uh, uh, she said, well, give me your signet ring. And, and uh, evidently there was a special sash or cord that he had around himself. And his staff that was personalized also, she said, give me those and then I'll give them back to you when you bring the, the goat in payment for this, um, this sexual uh, dalliance. And so they, they, um, uh, they went forward with their fornication. Uh, Judah went off um, and uh, Tamar went off and uh, she went back to her life then as as a daughter-in-law to Judah, and uh, as if nothing had happened. But then, of course, she got pregnant from this uh, this um, intercourse, and uh, she begins to show. And so that this was reported to Judah, and Judah was really uh, upset about it. He didn't know that, that he was the source of the impregnation and the, and the baby. So Judah is really, really upset about it. He thinks he's going to go do what's righteous by God, and he's going to, uh, he's going to burn uh, Judah, or I mean Tamar, uh, for her obvious fornication. You can't get pregnant if you haven't been intimate with somebody. And so, and she was not married, she was a widow, so it was obvious that she had been, uh, she'd been fooling around with the, the wrong person. And so, he brings her forward, and uh, at that point, um, she turns on him, and in, in uh, verse 22, it says, When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man of whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Well, Judah's flabbergasted, verse 26. He, and he immediately acknowledged that they were his, and he says publicly before the court, he says, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Sheila, my son. And uh, it says he never knew her again. In other words, he never had uh, sex with her again. He was never intimate with her again. Uh, he repented of his sin. And he was publicly shamed and embarrassed by all of this that went on. 
And that's how, then, it says in verse 27, it came to pass at the time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth. Well, it gives the details of the birth. But um, um, that's how these two boys, uh, Perez and Zerah, uh, came to be uh, that are then mentioned in the book of Matthew. So here we have the, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In the book of Matthew, there are, there are two genealogies, one in Matthew and one in Luke. In Matthew's, uh, it's not an exhaustive genealogy, but they, the, the authors pick and choose different people and to give the genealogy in slightly different ways. But both of the ways point to the special, the unique special nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, at the very beginning of the genealogy in Matthew, moments after mentioning Abraham, the father of the, these these uh, four, two, these fourteen gener these three sets of fourteen generations leading up to Christ, at the very beginning, the very, almost the very first people that are mentioned as being ancestors of Jesus are the two boys that were born out of this horrible situation between Judah and Tamar and the loss of his other sons because of their wickedness. Now, my question is, who in their right mind, if you were making up a genealogy of yourself, who, who in their right mind would lead with this horror story of Tamar and Perez and Zerah. Who in their right mind would, would, uh, would do that? But that is exactly the way God does it in his holy word in the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew. So, um, what we see from the story in Genesis 38, it, it brings us to the unbelievable question of why in the Lord the Lord would do this. And that leads us to the second point of, of my sermon. The first point was Matthew 1-3 and Genesis 38 and it's terrible backstory. Uh, the second point is the Bible's genealogy or story of Jesus is opposite to man's. And that should really when I talk about this, when I explain this just a little bit more, I think you, you, you're left scratching your head. But you, what you realize is that God definitely did things differently than men. Now, why I say that is that, that most in human history, most of the time, when origins of peoples or origins of, of uh, people, uh, individuals are given, they glorify their past. They, if anything, they... They they do the story of their background. They do the history of their background, where they come from. They embellish it. They uh, they they aggrandize it. They tell it in uh, most wonderful possible ways possible. I think of I think of uh, Greece when when Greece would tell its history, it would go right back to the gods, and uh, there were. Uh, there were different sets of gods, different levels of deity in their minds. There were the, the, the one whole class of gods were the Titans. And uh, they were the, supposed to be the ancestors of the Greeks. And uh, after the Titans, there were the Olympians. These were the, 
the gods of Mount Olympus, which was a place of the gods. And uh, uh, after that, you had it, it worked all. It's worked its way down to people like Achilles, who was one of the great Greek uh, ancestral men. And uh, Achilles, if you remember the story of Achilles, his mother uh, wanted to protect him, and so she dipped him in the river Styx, which was a semi-divine uh, river. It's associated with the, the, the river of death also, uh, but it's, it had to do with div the divinity of the Greek gods. And so this Achilles became a great warrior in Greek history. But he was dipped in the river by his, his mother, grabbed him by the one leg and held on by his heel, where the, where the, what, we have the, uh, what we call the Achilles tendon. There's a, at the bottom, right above your foot, behind your leg, there's this place where there's a major tendon that runs down the back of your leg and underneath your foot then and provides tremendous strength to our ability to walk and to run, that sort of thing. Well, uh, his mother grabbed him by that and, and held him above the river sticks, which is this divine water and dipped him in the, dipped him in the river and thereby she believed, obtained protection for her, her son, this great leader of Greece. So Achilles, it's recognized that Achilles was semi-divine in his background. So the Greeks, when they told the story of their lives, they, they, have, this, uh, they have this divine water and uh, all these levels of the gods that, were, that ran before them, so that they, they embellished the story of where they came from. They wanted their soldiers to think, we come from the gods. We are powerful. We can do what we want. When we go into battle, we go in not as our, just ourselves, not as individuals, but we go as representatives of the, divine, the divinity of this world. When we think of Rome, that was the Greeks. When we think of Rome, the, the basic, the, older, the oldest story of Rome traces to these two brothers, Romulus and Remus. And um, uh, Romulus is supposed to be the son of uh, the uh, the god Mars, uh, and he, with his, uh, which he, he then took a woman, and uh, they they produced the the father who was a de deity, uh, and the and the woman produced this son named Remus. Rom well, brothers Romulus and Remus both, and. Um, uh, Romulus was taken out and uh, exposed when he was a baby, supposedly, uh, but he was found by wolves. Uh, you can see the embellishment and the, the mystif mystification here of the, the Romans, where they thought they came from. And so uh, these two brothers, Romulus and Remus, became the great leaders of, uh, of Rome, and ultimately there was uh, Romulus had Remus uh, murdered. So there's all the intrigue of politics with these ancient peoples, but they, they trace their, their, uh, their lineage to the deities. Um, one of the, one of the, re, one of the bad tokens of the Roman Catholic Church is the fact that they take the same approach, uh, uh, with in, Ro in, in Roman Catholicism, what do we have with the the birth of Jesus Christ? Well, we have his his life is embellished, or his his background is embellished by the perpetual virginity or purity of Mary. And so, it's not enough that Jesus uh, comes into the earth through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
they they take this humanistic process of trying to embellish uh, Jesus or the origin or origination of Jesus by uh, embellishing the life of his mother, the the Virgin Mary, and uh, enhancing the circumstances. But what we what we find in the in the in the Bible, which is the real story, we find that there's no embellishment. There's no making the story better than it was. In fact, it, it turns out that it's worse. It's much worse. We find out that Jesus comes from this family that was a train wreck. They were under God's care, but they were still in so many ways a train wreck. So that redemption doesn't come from the strength of men. The redemption doesn't come from the strength of our genes. Redemption doesn't come because of the things that we've thought of or the designs or the plans that we've made, redemption comes from the power of God. Jesus Christ was, uh, Mary was inseminated by the Holy Spirit of God and all of the, all of the promise, all of the good stuff, all of the power of her son, Jesus, comes not from the gene pool of men or the efforts of men, but it comes from the living God. And so we see here that um, this is entirely, the, the, the story of Jesus is entirely different than the typical story of men. Think of ourselves and the, the people, people want to study out their genealogies. And in America here, very often the goal is to see if you can get your genealogy traced to the Pilgrim Forefathers. Now, the Pilgrim Forefathers were Puritans after a fashion. They were definitely uh, concerted or devoted Christians. And they didn't do this. Uh, this is people that come along afterwards, many of them that have no interest or knowledge of the living God or of his son, Jesus Christ, but they want to trace, the, they, they want to enhance their own sense of importance by tracing themselves in the genealogies through the Puritan forefathers. Now, the Puritan forefathers themselves, the Pilgrim forefathers, half of them died the first winter that they were in America because the circumstances were so harsh. But ultimately they didn't care because they were on a holy adventure they were trying to plan, plot, uh, institute a new civilization that would be more representative of the kingdom of God than the old life, than their old life, lives in Europe. And so they didn't try to enhance themselves at all. And when the stories of the Puritan and Pilgrim forefathers are told, they're told with all of their wrinkles, all of their warts, and all of their problems, much like the story of Jesus is told as he came from these two sons that were born because of a fornication between a father and his daughter-in-law there in old um, old Israel. What we see in the Bible is that there is no enhancement, there is no make-believe, there is no in trying to embellish the circumstances of humanity. Instead, it's all history. And when Jesus was born, uh, he was born in the midst of political tumult, and he, they, uh, uh, Herod uh, uh, tries to kill uh, Jesus by killing all of the children of Bethlehem, 
we we have Jesus fleeing to e Egypt for uh, a peace and for escape. Uh, we we see Jesus coming to the world, and uh, despite the fact that he was so good and so wonderful and so understanding and so wise, uh, people of this world would not have him. They would not accept him, even his own people. And there was a combination. There was a uh, a conspiracy between the greatest civilization of that day, Rome, and imperial Rome, and the the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jews of that day. There was this conspiracy between paganism and uh, belief, or so-called belief of that day. And they ended up crucifying the Lord Jesus. But the Bible is very clear that, uh, that God's solution to mankind doesn't come through embellishment. It doesn't come through enhancing the circumstances of man. The... The, the answer that God gives us comes through real history, real people, even the messy situations of history and real people. And it comes through uh, the love of God as God worked that out in his only begotten Son, even our Lord Jesus Christ. Where should the hope of our families today come from? We live in a day where in some ways it's it's. It's virtual, we're virtually in a civil war here in America. We have the major parts of our government that are refuse to go along with each other. We have the most extraordinary kind of crisis brewing just in the background. We have questions arising. Well, if... if uh, if the executive branch of the government will not do, the legislature is supposed to make the laws, the executive branch is supposed to enforce those laws, and then the judi judiciary, the same Supreme Court, is supposed to um, decide if there are any controversies between those two, the Supreme Court is supposed to decide which is the lawful way to go. But people today don't even understand the concept of law concept of law says that you make laws and then and then everybody obeys those. They, they make wise laws, the laws which are good, and then, uh, then everybody's supposed to obey those laws. But we've got a complete breakdown today. People don't really believe the law. They don't really believe in law anymore. They don't. Law is the, what is, what is uh, true and good and, and, uh, and equal for all men. And, uh, but people don't believe that today. We, we've split up into tribalism. Now, if you're uh, if you're a Republican uh, associated with Donald Trump, you get one set of laws, and then if you're Joe Biden and representative of the Democratic Party, you get another set of laws. Well, that's not law. When 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 uh, when when the law becomes prejudicial, or when people are partial and making decisions based upon who you are instead of the law, that's a, that's a situation of chaos. But that's where we are today. And uh, uh, we need, in our day, we need a return to a sense of truth, a sense of justice, a sense of, of law, and even more so a sense of who is God. Because if we do not worship the God of the Bible, then we are turned back over to the chaos of history. And when you look at history, you look at men and all of their different governments, and you see a tremendous uh, chronology of chaos and uh, confusion, warfare. If you look at, uh, no matter where you look in the world, uh, you see 
a tremendous amount of discord and uh, tumult that leads to people dying because there is no peace. There is no overarching law or overarching government or sense of the good. In order to have an overarching sense of the good, we've got to have the God of the Bible. And both neither political party today really acknowledges that. They're being forced to it, ultimately. God is forcing this upon us by the chaos that he's bringing about. People that don't believe in him and don't believe in law, they're finding that they have no solution or no way around the chaos that God is bringing them to. But the Bible tells us a different way. The Bible gives us a picture of a child that was born out of the chaos. He was a product of the chaos, but there was no chaos in him. There was simply love and joy and peace and the Holy Spirit. And we as Christians need to republish that story today to our ourselves, to our families, and to our neighbors. And I would challenge the moms and dads and the Southwest Ohio RP Church. I would challenge the moms and dads. I would challenge the kids. I would challenge us to challenge each other to understand these things and to see how the Bible itself testifies to this in the story of Judah and Tamar and Perez and Zerah and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ as it details that through his genealogy. Let us close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we pray that we might see the significance of thy name, that we might see the significance of the living God, that we might see the relevance of thine existence for our existence. We pray, O oh God, that thou wouldst be our God, that we would be thy people. America has had so many blessings in the first 400 years of its history, but we are now at a turning point. Will we continue to represent thee in some way, shape, or form, or will we go further down the pipes of dissolution? and chaos until we are no more as a people. We pray, O oh Lord, that there might be many who would understand this from the Bible, even from passages like we've read today, and that they would, they would see the utter necessity of being uh, outwardly uh, honest Christians. Judah needed to be an outward, honest uh, believer in his grandfather's religion, the, Abraham, the religion of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Judah needed to be better than he was. We need to be better than we are today, O oh Lord. Bring us, we pray, bring us thy blessings through Christ, the kingdom of God. In his name we pray. Amen.